You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to sing such wonderful songs tonight that exalt the person of Christ and his birth and then what he came to do, come to the earth to die for sinners we're on a hell-bound race, hopeless and lost without your help. You sent your son to die, to pay for the sins that we had committed. So Lord, we thank you and praise you. And Lord, I pray that you help us to come to your word tonight, expecting the spirit of God to work in our hearts, understanding that your word is alive, that it's powerful, and that it can change us. And Lord, as we think about the glory of our Savior, Lord, I pray that we would be enamored by it once again, that we would see the beauty of Christ and desire to know him more and more. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you have ever experienced something that was indescribable, something that was so incredible, something that overwhelmed you. It was so majestic, so beautiful, so perfect, so something about it was just so amazing. And you had all these feelings that went along with it. And as you experienced that, you just had this great desire to share with other people. But then when you go to tell others about it, what happens? It's, they don't get it, right? It's really difficult. When I think about those things, I think about a few times in my life where it was just, the feeling was so cool. I remember the feeling of winning our OMHA championships as a kid, playing hockey. It was just a really neat thing because we worked all year. We thought this might be the chance, and then we had all these like rivals that we had to beat, and finally we won in the last game by a goal. It was just so exciting, and that feeling was pretty cool. I also remember what it was like when I first got to go see the Rocky Mountains. You got to get to the top of the mountain, and then you walk along a ridge. Has anybody ever done a ridge walk before? It's, I mean, it's unreal. You're, you're between two mountains, and there's a ridge that connects them, and you're just walking on top of this ridge with indescribable beauty in every direction. It's a cool feeling. You feel very little, but you feel the glory of God's beautiful creation all around you. I remember what it was like having Kara give birth to children. That was pretty cool. You know, the, the, the feeling of like, this is a live baby. It's ours. But it's really hard to help others understand that. A lot of times you think you had to be there. If you were there, you would get it. Well, this evening, we are going to look at a story where I think being there would have really helped us get it. You know, how is it possible to describe to other people what it's like seeing the glorified Christ. I think that's a, that's a stretch. I think it's difficult for us. I don't think we have language to do that. Yet, Mark tries to help us see what it was like. And so, what we need to do is do our best to hopefully pay attention and understand what the Word of God is teaching us. Why did Mark include this story? I think that there are two things happening in this story. And the first one is, we find an unveiling of Christ. Can you imagine what it would be like, and some of you this would be hard because you're women, but can you imagine what it would be like getting married to the most beautiful woman in the world? But you've never seen her. And so you're walking, and you're up at the front, and she's walking down the aisle, and she's got her veil on, and you're kind of just seeing glimpses of the beauty that's behind the veil. 
but you're excited to see the whole thing, right? To, to see her unveiled. And so that moment when the veil comes off and you see the beauty shining radiantly is incredible. And I wonder here if for the disciples that they had seen Jesus, right? They knew Jesus, but they knew the man Jesus. And they saw glimpses of his divinity. They saw glimpses of his glory. But here for Peter and James and John, his glory was revealed. And they saw it in a way they'd never seen it before. And so I think it's an unveiling. I think it's also a previewing. That, that what we're seeing here is just this tiny preview of what's to come. Because when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus being born in the manger. We think of the, the story of his humility and of his humanity and growing up and, and suffering and being crucified and having other people hurt him, getting tired, getting sick. That's the gospel story. But if we're not careful, we miss the glory of Christ, the full divinity of Christ. That he is not just the baby, though he is that. He's the approachable, humble baby. He's not just the suffering servant, though we have to keep that in our minds. We have to think about Christ in the manger and at the cross, but don't miss that he's also the king, the sovereign king who's glorified. And so for a moment, they get the preview, right? And, and I think there's a lot of helpfulness for the believer if we can keep those three things in mind, that he's approachable, he came as a baby, he came to, to save us, that he suffered and died as a substitute for us, and that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So keep those things in our mind as we go. The unveiling and the previewing. Here is Mark's account of the transfiguration of Christ. If you remember in Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus is relaying to his disciples what his identity is. And so Peter gets it. He is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But he's also revealing to them what his mission is, that he's going to go and, be su and suffer and die and then rise again from the grave. And they understand now, at least in an intellectual way, his identity. But they still have not grasped his mission. And I think then at the end of Mark 8, we found Jesus describing the identity and mission of his disciples. Who are the followers of Jesus? What must you be? What must you look like if you are a follower of Christ? Well, first you have a desire. But you desire to come after him. And then you're willing to deny yourself. To surrender your will to God's will. To give him first place in your life. And then you take up your cross. Right? You're willing to suffer for the mission that you're called to. You're willing to sacrifice of yourself and follow him. And that means Follow him in his example of suffering. Follow him in his mission. So that's what, a, that's what a disciple looks like. That's the identity and mission of a disciple. I think in verse 1 of chapter 9, he's continuing on what the motivation is to be a disciple. So he's already given us some motivation, right? He's already said that there's nothing as valuable as your soul, and if you will... Seek to save your life. If you seek possessions and joy, you will end up dead. But if you're willing to give your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, then you'll be saved. You'll save it. And there's nothing as valuable as your soul. 
Additionally, if you are ashamed of Jesus in this life, he will be ashamed of you. That's a terrifying thought. But I think chapter 1 and verse 9, he continues this, and I think probably verse 1 belongs in chapter 8. Verse 1 says, And he said unto him, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So the kingdom of God is coming with power. And his statement here is that there's some people standing here that will not die before they see that. This is a verse that has been discussed by theologians ad nauseum. Right? You can speak for ever about what it means that the kingdom of God is coming with power. What it means exactly that some of them wouldn't die first. Uh, I don't want to spend a ton of time here because I don't really know how I'm going to get through it all yet. But just quickly, there are a few ideas, some ideas that the kingdom of God coming with power is Pentecost, that that's when it came with power. Some believe that it's the, the whole church, the whole first church age, and the, the spread of the gospel, that's the kingdom of God coming with power. Some say it's the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Um, most believe that the kingdom of God coming with power is the following few verses. It's the next event in the gospel, and it's the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And so, in verse 2, we find that story recorded. And after six days, Jesus take, took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding as snow, as no fuller on earth can white them. So Jesus brings his three leaders, Peter, James, and John, up to a high mountain. This is most likely Mount Hermon. It's located near Caesarea Philippi. And it's the highest mountain in that region, standing at over just 9,000 feet above sea level. Why do I tell you that? Well, I want you to know how smart I am. It's not, it's not really... You know I just looked that up. I think it's easy for us to forget that these events happened in real places. Right? That, that this was a real mountain. That they actually had to make this hike. That, that the disciples might have had some questions along the way, like... Uh, why do we have to go up this high mountain to pray? Like, can't we pray from where we are right here? Or, um, how come the other guys don't have to come? Because right? you can imagine them getting up halfway up the mountain and being like, I, I mean, I, I've been up the Rockies. I'm telling you, it's breathtaking at the top, but it takes your breath away the entire way up. Right? It's hard. I, like, there's so many times I just wanted to die out there. We took Michelle and Travis hiking one time, and she literally asked Travis if they could camp and, and like create a, like a hut in the middle of the mountains because she couldn't go any further. And then Justin gave her an energy pill that was really a muscle relaxant, but it helped. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good day. Um, and so these guys are they're going up the mountain. They, they finally get to the top. And they begin to pray. And as Jesus is praying, we find this in the book of Luke. As he's praying, he is suddenly transfigured before their eyes. And I'm, like these guys are trying to describe for us what that looks like. And so, so Mark says his raiment, his clothing, 
became shining. It's exceedingly white like snow, like, like whiter than any fuller could ever whiten it. And a fuller is like a launderer. And so you can see him talking, grasping for words. Like, it was really, it was white. No, like, like really white, like shining, like, like whiter than your grandma can get it. Right? That's, that's the idea. It's, it's, it's white. It's, it's bright and shining white. And for these guys, white was not a real common color to be worn. Because it was really difficult in this environment to keep anything white for long. It's difficult to get it to be white in the first place. And so this is just like the symbol of purity and of something incredibly special. And here's Jesus as white as, as snow. Um, Matthew tells us that his face was like shining like the sun. And so it's hard for us to imagine exactly what that is because I don't think there is earthly language to describe what the glorified Christ looks like. But just from these pieced together descriptions, we can imagine it was pretty amazing. His whole countenance was changed before them. He was unveiled. And they saw the glory of who he really is. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel describes the appearance of the Ancient of Days. I just bring this up because I want us to understand what Mark is doing here. He says, The Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Uh, This description that Mark and Luke, uh, and Matthew give of Jesus, is similar to this. This is the description of God. And we see the glory of Christ, the glory of the Son of God, God the Son, appear. Verse 4 says, And there appeared unto them Elias, or Elijah, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. When I read that, I thought, that's so cool. Here's Elijah, and Moses just chatting it up with Jesus. Like, can you imagine what that would be like? And it occurred to me, and not, not that there are people in heaven already, but it occurred to me that people like Elijah and Moses now talk to Jesus. Like, the, the, that's not just this, like, future thing that we're all going to look forward to someday, but that it's happening now. And so I almost pictured Elijah and Moses catching up with Jesus. You know, how's it going down there on earth? Oh, it's going well. How, you know, that kind of thing. However, Luke gives us some direction about what they were talking about. And so Luke chapter 9, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So notice two things. First of all, there's something different about Elijah and Moses than the original Elijah and Moses. Right? There's something glorified about them as well, which is a neat thought. But secondly, they're speaking of his decease or his exodus, which should, what he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They're speaking about his death. So they meet with him, and for these few moments that they get to speak with him, the disciples there remembered them speaking about his death. I just find that fascinating, that that's what was on the mind of Christ at that moment, and that's what was on the mind of Elijah and Moses as they spoke with him. And so Peter, ill-advisedly, decides it's time for him to speak. And so Peter, in verse 5, answered and said unto Jesus, Master, 
it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Is there anybody out there that finds himself to be a nervous talker? Like you don't, you know, there's silence, you're a little nervous, and so you just keep talking and talking and talking. I, I don't think, I'm not like that. But I find it hilarious when people are. I think Peter's like that. Right? They became fearful. And when, when I'm fearful, I think I'm just going to be really quiet and like shrink back and just watch it all happen. But he decides it's time for him to, to talk. And so he begins saying, Master, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, sure. So Jesus doesn't respond to that. I wonder if like James and John looked at him like, that's what you started with? <laughs> it's good for us to be here. And then, and then he says, and he asks a question. He says, do you think it's a good idea for us to build three altars? Because we have the glorified Jesus and the glorified Moses and Elijah here. And, and the three of you are amazing. The three of you are men of God. Do you think we should build an altar, a tabernacle, to sacrifice to the three of you? This question is not answered directly. Okay? Be- because Jesus kind of decided just to ignore Peter altogether. He didn't answer either of his statements. But I think in verse 7, God answers the question. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. So the question is, should we have three altars? And the God the Father comes down and says, this one's my son, and you need to hear him. And if there aren't three, seven more helpful words in our Christian walk than any other words possible, I wonder if it would be, this is my son, hear him. If we did that, we'd be, I mean, we'd be doing really well in our Christian life, wouldn't we? If we would just listen to what Christ taught us, if we listened to the incarnate word of God, we would do much better than I'm sure we do. Verse number eight. Suddenly, when they looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying within themselves, questioning one with another what the rising of the dead should mean. So Jesus instructs them. It it all ends as quickly as it started. And then Jesus says, I don't want you to tell anybody about this. Not until I've risen again from the dead. And I'm sure the disciples are wondering why. Why can't we tell everybody? But they're stuck on this one thing. What does it mean that he's going to rise from the dead? Now, the problem here is that they shouldn't be stuck on it. Because Jesus had already been teaching them. Back in Mark 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter said, you're not going to suffer. But he didn't get the rising again part. They were missing that rising again part. And and it's funny how lost they are 
without understanding the resurrection of Jesus. And if, if, if we don't ever understand that, that Christ rose again from the dead, that he wasn't just a teacher, he wasn't, he wasn't just a great philosopher, but he was one, a man, the God-man who came and died and then rose again, we will miss the whole thing. Peter still didn't get the resurrection. You need to get the resurrection. You need to understand that you serve a risen Savior. And so here they continue questioning what the resurrection means. Verse 11. And they asked him, saying, why say the scribes and Elias must come first? And so they're trying to figure this all out, and they're saying, Jesus, like, why does, why do the Pharisees say, why are they saying that Elias must come first? In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi wrote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so doesn't Elijah have to come back first? We saw him here, but he didn't come all the way to earth. And so Jesus tries to explain this to them. And again, I think we could spend more time here than we have tonight. But verse 12, Jesus answered, and he answered and told them, Elias verily came first and restored all things. And how it was written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. So the answer is, Elijah did come first. And this has got to be really confusing to them. Because what do you mean Elijah came first? I didn't see him. When did he come? And he restored all things. What's the restoration of all things? And I think what is being talked about here, what Jesus is referencing, is that, that John the Baptist, who we'll see in a moment, is Elijah. John the Baptist came and he set Israel. He gave Israel what they needed to be set right again. So he was kind of the, the last prophet and the, the one who prepared the way of the Lord, who came to show Israel the right way. That was the restoring all things. And how it is written that the Son of Man, so now he begins speaking about himself again, that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done to him whatsoever they listed, whatever they wanted to do, they did, as is written of him. Really? John came, okay? And in Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 to 14, Jesus makes it very clear that this Elijah coming was John the Baptist that came. Uh, that was the promise to Zechariah that his son would come and he would be the Elijah that would come. But what I think is interesting about this whole, this whole uh, passage is the phrase that he would suffer many things and be set at naught. Because... We have just seen Jesus in his glory. We've just seen Jesus lifted up as divine, as majestic, as powerful, like no other person ever. And then the first thing we're told by Jesus is that John came to prepare the way and that Jesus would suffer and then be set at naught. And the phrase set at naught means to make utterly nothing of. So Jesus, who's just been lifted up and glorified, they're going to take that Jesus and make nothing of him. Make him to be less than a human being. Luke chapter 23, 11 records, And Herod with his men of war set him at naught, and mocked him and arrayed him with a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. Part of what Jesus went through 
the glorified Christ, the, the beautiful Christ, the wonderful Christ, is that he was taken by sinful people and he was made to be nothing. Part of the sufferings he endured. What an awful thing to think that people can have the greatest treasure in the universe brought before their eyes and they can make nothing of him. People do it all the time. It's, it's awful when they miss it, when they don't see it, how much worse when they scoff at it. And so as we look at the transfiguration of Christ, uh, I hope that there's some helpful lessons we can learn in this story. Um, the first one is we have to see the preeminence of Christ in all things. We have to see that Christ comes first. He is greater than all before him. He is greater than all after him. He is the one that Elijah and Moses were waiting for, hoping for. He was their hope. He was their redeemer. Right? They, they are nothing in comparison to him. He is not the first among equals. Right? He is in a league of his own. Um, here, this passage purposefully, I think, takes two heavyweights in history in the history of the faith. I mean, they take the guys that if you were to mention Moses or Elijah, everybody would think, whoa, those guys were amazing. They were wonderful men of God. One led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and, and the other was just an incredible prophet who was taken up to heaven in a chariot. Like, these are, are amazing men. And God brings those two down basically to say, this is my son. you got to hear him. These guys aren't, I mean, this was... The picture of the law in Moses pointing to Jesus. The picture of the prophets in Elijah pointing to Jesus. But they're all pointing to Jesus. He is my son. right? So, so he is not the first among equals. He is so much greater than they are. It is not that Jesus is any of what the people reported Jesus to be when he asked them about his identity. Remember when Jesus said, who do they say that I am? And they said, well, you're a prophet, or you're like Moses, you're like Elijah. You're, you're pretty amazing, Jesus. They, they, they're sure you're a man of God. He's like, that's, that's not it. You have to understand that's not it. That he always comes first. He is the unique son of God. He is fully God and fully man. And I think it is good for us, especially now at Christmas time, to remember that. Fully God, fully man, glorified and humble. His position and his authority is wrapped up in who he is. And because he is the Son of God, we hear him. So we must keep Christ preeminent in all things. The second, and this is something that I think is a true statement. You have to bear with me for a second because I don't think this text itself teaches it. Okay? Hopefully that makes sense in a second. Maybe after I, I, I do this, you'll be like, don't ever do that again. Okay? We'll see. But this is what I think. I think personal experiences with Jesus are best. I think they're necessary. Okay? And so this is, this is my thinking behind that. Try and follow. Um, Jesus is teaching his disciples that lesson one, who he is. Lesson two, why he's come. They finally get intellectually lesson one. Right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now he's trying to teach them lesson two, and they're really stumbling at that because they don't want him to suffer and die. They don't, they don't understand the resurrection. And so they have an intellectual understanding of something, but they, they don't fully get it yet. And you know that there's a, a, a chasm of difference between having an intellectual understanding of something and actually experiencing that thing. 
feeling that thing. And so I think in this text, part of what Jesus is doing is he's allowing Peter and James and John to feel who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not just that I've kind of put the pieces together in the Old Testament and you're doing some of the things that we saw that, that the Messiah would do, but now I see it. I feel it. I see the bright light. I'll never forget what your face looked like. I, I can't describe it, but it was amazing. And so they feel that lesson. Now can you imagine going down the mountain, waiting until Jesus died and rose again, and then trying to tell that story to your peers? How difficult it would be. So Peter, this is what I, I picture Peter trying to tell this story. Okay, so Jesus told us that we had to go up to this mountain and pray, and I was kind of like, all the way up there, that's really far. But we went, and we got up there finally, and then Jesus started praying, and as he's praying, like crazy things start happening. All of a sudden, he was completely different. I mean, he was still Jesus, but he was like a different version of Jesus. Like, he was amazing. And they're like, well, what do you mean? He's like, okay, so his clothes were shining. They were, they were really white, like so, so white. Okay. And his face was like on fire, not like, not like fire, like, but like the sun, like, it was just so bright. And so, he, trying to describe to them what Jesus looked like, but struggling so much to do it. And so, he says, well then, okay, so then Moses and Elijah appeared there. And they said, well, what were they doing? Like, well, they, were, they were there and they were just having a conversation with Jesus. So, they say, okay, well, what did you guys do? Like, well, I told them that it was good we were here. He said, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what did Jesus say? Uh, he, didn't, he didn't respond. And then I asked a question. Should we build three altars, one for each of you? Oh, okay. Yeah, so what did Jesus say? Nothing. Nothing again. And, uh, and so Peter goes, guys, it's really scary. <laughs> right? I was scared. I didn't know what to say. And so, but then God spoke. What did God say? He said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Do you notice that that's the only part of the whole thing that's really clear, that really makes full sense, that we can really grasp onto? That's what Peter remembers vividly. This is my beloved son, hear him. And I think Peter told that story often enough and got laughed at often enough that he knew better than to include it in one of his epistles. <laughs> he wrote a couple letters, didn't, didn't include that. But I think he might have made mention of it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, granted, that could be speaking about his resurrection. He was majestic in his resurrection. But I kind of wonder if maybe he's just thinking back to that day on Mount Hermon. John learned from Peter's foibles too. John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus was glorious. He, he was full of glory while he walked the earth. But there was that moment where they saw the glory as of the Father. 
in him. But Peter and James and John did tell this story. They told the story to Matthew. So Matthew wrote it down in Matthew 17. Luke heard about the story, and he wrote it down in Luke 9. And then Peter, companion of Mark, a mentor of Mark, wrote his version, Peter's version down in Mark chapter 9. And I believe that this event helped shape Peter, James, and John into the men of God that they became. Right? And now we have the privilege of hearing from them and benefiting from it. But we must be careful not to only know Jesus by the descriptions of others. Okay? Now, you have to be careful here, right? Because you can go so far the other way where it's like you're trying to have conversations of Jesus and you're making up answers. And that's, that's problematic, right? If you're just like sitting there and be like, Jesus, you know, what do you, what do you like to eat for breakfast? Um, and then you're actually getting answers. That's, that's probably not legitimate. You've got to be really careful because Jesus speaks through his word. But what, I, what I'm saying is, I think we have to have times where we meet God in his word. Where we meet God in prayer. Where, where his word speaks not just in an intellectual way, but where we feel it. Okay? The apostle Paul felt it as he was describing um, in 1 Timothy how great it is that God saved a sinner like him. And then all of a sudden he breaks into doxology. He breaks into praise. Why did that happen? It, wasn't, it didn't seem like he planned to just all of a sudden, I'm going to forget this thought and then move on to the glory of God. It seems like he was just overflowed with God's goodness and his grace and his mercy that he couldn't hold it in. There was the experience there, not just the intellectual knowledge. And so when I say personal experience is best, I think that this was necessary and helpful for them in their growth. It allowed them to help others in the future and for us, too, we need to have some personal experience of time with Jesus. Right? I hope that makes sense. And maybe I'm pushing this too far. And if I am, I'm sorry. But we need to know Jesus at more than an intellectual level. And so here is finally um, a lesson that we can for sure leave with. And I think from this text, uh, Jesus is to be worshipped above all else and to be obeyed. And I think that's abundantly clear here. He is the beloved son, and we ought to hear him. The disciples want to build an altar to each man. And as much as that sounds crazy to us, you got Jesus and then you got two other guys. I mean, I know they're important guys, but obviously Jesus. I think it happens sometimes that we begin to exalt men to positions that they don't belong. We begin to exalt their ideas, their opinions. We begin to exalt their uh, certain doctrines that they just love to talk about and they, they, they can't seem to talk about anything without bringing that into it. You know what I mean? It, that we can get wrapped up in that. And it's not new just for our generation. It's happening often, especially with all these celebrity pastors. It's, it's difficult not to see this person on YouTube who is so eloquent and funny and helpful and, and knowledgeable and think, I'm just going to listen to everything they say. You've got to be careful, though. Because we are told to hear Jesus, not person on YouTube. In Corinth, a, a worldly city, a worldly church, Paul basically begins his letter saying, Now this I say, that every one of you says, I am of Paul, or of Apollos, or of Cephas, or of Christ. 
You're dividing yourself. You've got different people who you lift up as your greatest teacher, and that's the one you follow. And he says, is Christ divided? No, Christ is not divided. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. So you don't, don't exalt a man. Don't lift a man up to that place. There's no equal. In 1 Corinthians 3.5, he continues. He goes back to that discussion. He says, who then is Paul or who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed. All we are are beggars who told you where to find bread. We pointed to Jesus. That's it. Even as the Lord gave to every man, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that plants anything, neither is he that waters, but God that gives the increase. It is a humbling thought and a freeing thought to know that, that I don't matter. I mean, God does not need Dan Christians in any way, shape, or form to do what he wants to do. Like here at the church, in anybody, any of your lives, in, in, in anybody's life. I can be gone in a second, and it won't matter to the cause of Christ. And that's freeing. Okay? It's not about me. It's people pointing to Christ, and Christ can do things through any of us. We are very replaceable. But what a wonderful thing to think that God will use us to plant and to water. That God will allow us to be part of him giving the increase. That we get to be part of the ministry that he's called us to. And so then, then Paul gives the building analogy that this whole thing is this building, right? And we're all kind of a part of the building. But this is his conclusion in verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. It can't be about anything else. It is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And we must keep that at the center of everything. He must be preeminent. And so let's not start bringing secondary or tertiary doctrines in and trying to make them the main thing. I'm not saying that they're not important, but it's got to be Jesus. That has to be the focus. That's got to be where our attention always is. This is about Jesus. It must be. And you notice that in in this story, all the disciples did was look. They were present, they looked to Jesus, and he did the transforming. He was transformed before them, and I think in a lot of ways, he was transforming them. And they were just looking at him. And it's cool how often the Bible tells us to look, just to behold Jesus. In 1 John 3.2, John writes, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There'll be a day coming when we see him as he is, and we'll be like him. But the process here on earth until that day is constantly looking to him and trying to be more like him. And as we look to the author and the finisher of our faith, we begin to become like him. There's an author that wrote, Look up into his lovely face, and as you behold him, he will transform you into his likeness. And so, maybe what we need is a better view of Jesus. We need more time with him. We need more focus on him. 
We need to look more often on purpose to who he is and what he's done. I think there are some lessons that can only be learned by looking to him, looking to him in the word, trusting his character, and obeying his commands. Uh, I want to close with a quote by Alexander McLaren. He's a Scottish theologian. Ian will appreciate Alexander. He, He loves him. And he said, Remember that vision on the Mount of Transfiguration, and let it be ours. Even in the glare of earthly joys and brightness, lift up our eyes like those wandering three and see no man anymore save Jesus only. What a helpful thing would be in the midst of this busy season and these earthly joys and brightness just to stop and look up to Jesus and consider his person, his identity, his mission, and allow looking to him to change us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for uh, this amazing um, opportunity that you gave to Peter and James and John. I thank you that they experienced something so incredible, something we can barely imagine, uh, and that we are able now to learn from it and read about it. God, I pray that you would help us to have a walk with you, help us to have personal experience of the goodness of our God. Lord, I pray that we would keep Jesus first, first place in everything we do, first place in in the way we think about you and in the way we think about um, the church and what we focus our attention on and we uh, spend our treasure on. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be seeking your kingdom, the person of Christ. Lord, help us be unified in that endeavor. Lord, I thank you for this church and I thank you for the love that's here and for what you're doing. We just pray that you'd continue to work. I pray that we would continue to point people to Jesus and that the Spirit of God would draw men and women to him. We would see saved and becoming more like Jesus every day. Thank you, Lord, and we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.